and off and running we are. <clears throat> I have to apologize today. My voice is right on the edge of disintegrating. But we are at September the 17th, 2017, uh, lecture discussion number 296 on the Book of Romans. At least I think it's 296. Uh, not sure anymore. Uh, Jeff uh, from Pittsburgh called to inform us that we have at least two numbers, 294, I think. Along with a request, he said, uh, please make no corrections. But that was fantastic. Jeff, Jeff has already made the necessary adaptations to compensate. And that's very cool. We have our incongruities, as you know. And he's made the adjustment. The vast Internet audience is nothing if not agile. And there was more evidence of it. Uh, he said, don't change it because you're going to confuse me. And he just, let me have two, my two 294s and leave it that way. It's a, a blemish that uh, should have posterity. Anyway, really fast, let me insert some of this stuff that's going on out there. I saw a gentleman say, he's jumping up and down. He said, Christians are saying that the return is imminent. The return of Christ is imminent. And uh, he said, that's not true. The Christ will not return on September the 23rd, 2017. Is he right about that? Yeah, absolutely, he's right about that. Christ will not return. Notice how I said that. The return of Christ is not September the 23rd, 2017. No one who has any scriptural understanding is saying that it is. What are they saying is possible? the rapture. There is a difference between the bride, and we're into bride stuff today, as you know, and the wife. The return is for Israel. The rapture the, the, is for the bride, is for the church. And the bride, when he comes for the bride, he does not touch down. He's in the air. When he comes for the wife, he is on the ground. Everyone sees him. Everyone knows. I can tell you the exact time and day and where he will come for Israel. And that doesn't make me special. It just means I have a phone calculator. Okay, I don't have a phone. But I know exactly already when he will come for Israel. It's defined. The entire, every eye will see him heavenly and earthly, angel and human, animal, everyone will see him. He makes it perfectly clear who he is and what he's doing. So, those who say the return isn't here, they are commingling rapture and return. Get that off the, the uh, table for today. I read another guy that said, uh, what's wrong with you people? The rapture is not this week. Because Jesus Christ does not know when the rapture is. That only God knows. That's a literal quote. Only God knows. That is the same as saying, uh, only God knows when God knows. It, it, it makes no sense at all. It's intellectually bereft and doctrinally uh, almost blasphemous. Because you have, you have, what well, is blasphemous? Okay, let's say it even stronger. When you strip the deity and the omniscience from Christ, you have destroyed Christianity. And if you've done it, then you either are profoundly ignorant, I'm sorry, not really, fake sorry, or you are evil. You pick. 
you don't understand the Hebrew betrothal uh, system and why Christ said that, uh, I, I'll see me later. I can explain it. But uh, so much confusion. That makes perfect sense. We were talking, I've been talking to uh, lots of you, as you know, but uh, Lori and I were talking about all the stuff that's there. Our understanding of the book of Daniel, the technology that is eliminating the, uh, the separations that occurred at the Tower of Babel, the speed at which we are able to move now, the amount of information that is being gathered, uh, the technologies with regard to uh, defeating aging and disease and extending lifespans and the genetic uh, Manipulations, all of that is here in front of us simultaneously. Bill was asking, Bill the Cow, uh, Bill, I'm sorry, Bill the Fast was asking, uh, what is the hook for Israel? We've been debating that for years here. We're going to find out. Do I want the rapture to be here on Friday or Saturday or Sunday, whichever day? But yeah, absolutely, who wouldn't want that? We will think to ourselves, if only I could watch my favorite TV show for are you kidding me? Do you have any idea? No, we don't. We have no idea what we're going to. We're, we just don't know. We will cling to our sewer. That's what we will do. My bucket of sewage, Don't. I want one more dip into it. What are you thinking? That is how we function because we are seriously demented, right? He will fix that for us. We won't always be this ignorant. He'll fix it. Some of us he'll drag kicking and screaming out of here. That's what will happen. But yes, I do, I do hope the rapture is today. Then you won't have to listen to this. I don't care if it's before the buffet. I'll do without the buffet. Anyway. Okay, so where was it? I also received a letter from Deborah in regard to Genesis 3.16. I think Deborah in San Diego. And, uh, and Genesis 3.16 is not what she was referencing. She was referencing 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. And as you know, because you've been here forever and you know these things, 1 Timothy 2.14 is the great truth uh, that Adam was not deceived by Satan nor deceived by Eve. Adam not deceived, in my opinion, is what unlocks the book of Genesis. And knowing that he was not deceived by either one of them and having that firm as your foundation as you go through his trial and her trial and Satan's trial and all the aspects of what occurred there helps you unlock all of those mysteries there. Anyway, Deborah wished to confirm that it was biblical for women to teach the truths of Christ to women. That's what she wanted me to address. And that is eventually Titus 2, 3 through 5. And of course, it is absolutely fully biblical for women to teach the truths of Christ to women. I can be as definitive as I can be there, I hope. But the issue or the question then becomes eventually, can women be pastors? And if not, why not? What is Paul and the Holy Spirit addressing at Timothy's church in Ephesus? That's where we go in this discussion. Because it comes up there. There's some problem. Who are these Ephesian women that Paul is addressing to Timothy? 
What were they attempting to accomplish? How come they're not named specifically? It would be really convenient if they were. Why is Adam and Eve invoked in 2 Timothy 2 as a defining argument against women holding the office of pastor? Because it is. It says women cannot be pastors because of Adam and Eve. What about these women that we know that were extraordinary? Phoebe, Priscilla, Timothy's mother, Miriam, Deborah, Anna. Just to name but a few of them. Obviously, the answer to all of these uh, questions lie at Genesis 3. And for those who insist that women are, are more so easily deceived, the next question, the immediate question then, why does the Bible then uh, permit women to teach women and women to teach children? Wouldn't that be kind of, if you assume that women cannot teach men because women are more easily deceived and, and are so far right now, for example, currently, uh, it, but you, but the Bible says they can teach women and children, wouldn't that be the deceived leading the deceived? I have known, I know, I am, I have known many, many idiot pastors. I think the, the profession draws them like flies. I've thought so for a long time. And I am, after all, by the t-shirt, by the coffee mug, the ranting idiot. So I would include myself there. But clearly, intelligence and education are not qualifiers for pastors. Check it out. It just isn't the case. Look around and note as well the behavior of the apostles. He picked the apostles. How impressive were they when they started out, huh? Okay, good. I'm glad you know. Their responses, look at their responses. And the, the sons of thunder were out to kill everybody. I, I mean, they were, these were not uh, physicists. They were fishermen. They had to be taught by God, and they were. And that's an amazing transformation of them. But their responses in the first year of Christ's public ministry were not impressive. All that said, all that's, all that being said, there are none. No, none, absolutely none, not one known woman pastor in the New Testament. Why not? That's ultimately Deborah's question. And the answer is because of Genesis 3. What in Genesis 3 makes it this way? Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived. Adam believed God. The woman did not believe God. That cannot be disputed. Adam was created first. Woman was created second. That cannot be disputed. Adam was the federal head. Eve was the helper. She is the mother of all the living. God has it connected 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, back to Genesis 3. And lots of people don't understand why this is the determining factor. And they don't accept it. 
They don't think the seniority of Adam or the first created aspect of Adam, the federal headship of Adam, is something that needs to be protected. They don't think it has significant value. And by the way, Eve didn't think so either at first. Women pastors today abound, as you know. They are in public ministry. Public ministry is sought. Pastor title is sought and held by many, many women. And one would think that they would be more cautious. The question is not about intelligence or capability or knowledge. As you know, I give you Ada Ruth Habershaw, one of the most profound theological intellects that I am aware of. I hope I use her material incessantly. I I wrote to Deborah and I said, I hope someday when I meet her, she will say, you did good. I hope I make her proud. She was amazing. So the issue is not capability, knowledge. The issue is what happened to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is where God declared this. And this issue is within the sentencing. This, it's, it's exactly within the sentencing of Eve. It's in her trial sentence. And did she object to her sentencing? Did she say, no, this is too much for me to bear as Cain did? She did not. Did she understand why she had the sentence she did? Yes. That's, that's why Adam proclaims her the mother of all women. She became wise beyond anything we can imagine. So why does the church lean and seek after and and ignore? I said it all wrong. Start again. I should put some Worcestershire sauce in the... I should. I'm afraid to open it because, you know... It'll last for three or four hundred years if you leave it like this. I understand it's, a, it's not that much dissimilar from radioactivity, Worcestershire sauce. Probably the greatest parenting gift I gave to the boys was the love of Worcestershire sauce. Isn't that true? No, he disagreed. Doggone it. I should, I should at least seek him out before and tell him how he, what he must say. I went for it and it came up empty. Why does the church, uh, not respecting the sentencing of Eve as she did? What does this have to do, all of this, with believing God? Believing God about what? And last questions on this today. Uh, why do women seek to be pastors? Back to Ephesus. Is it that they don't believe God? Oh yeah, that's why. They don't believe what God says about this particular issue. I submit that is so. What is it then that they don't believe? Titus 2.5 says they cannot be pastors. Listen, it's not as easy as that, but... They, women are not to blaspheme the Word of God. That blaspheming that is coming up in Titus 2.5 is Genesis 3.17, the sentencing of Eve. Don't blaspheme that. So we'll have to return to this issue because it is a Genesis 3 issue, but, and we're in Genesis 3 today, but how are we in Genesis 3 today? 
we're talking about Samson. So, that's why it was applicable, that's why it was consistent with where we are, because this is still a discussion on Genesis 3, which is a discussion on Romans 5, which is a discussion on Judges 14, 15, and 16, which of course, and 13, which is of course Samson. All of that is the same. So that's what we're doing today, more Samson. And last Sunday, towards the end of the lesson, I said a couple of things that some might believe are in need of defense, and to which I will agree many times. In fact, it is my inclination, being that I am a one-eyed fat man, to say something bold, right? And I don't offer any justification to it. I just do it. I, I let the pretty bold pretty bold talk drift out, and then I wait, hoping for the inevitable challenges. Sometimes they don't come, neither from you guys here, or no letters arrive. And I know it's probably too easy early for the letters, but I feel like that's going to happen again today, so I'm going to throw out some more bait, or chum the water, whichever you wish, trying to lure in a shark. That's my plan. Makes me happy. And they do. They leave little messages that are absolutely easy to swat away. And so, so far, I'm doing really good with that on the YouTube stuff. They leave, leave some stuff that is really actually surprisingly uninformed. It's, it is much more than I thought. Hopefully, you remember that I posited that Samson quickly deduced the reason why his wife, notice Samson's wife, was pleading with him to reveal the solution. Samson's wife pleading for a solution. She was pleading for the, a solution to the dark saying that he had given to the Philistines. Dark saying means a hard saying, an unsolvable question. So we began to say, well, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to go and find all of the hard sayings of Christ and compare them to this hard riddle or hard saying or dark saying of Samson. And foremost among Foremost first among the unsolvable mysteries of Jesus Christ is the mystery of godliness, God and man in this combination. Genesis, I'm sorry, First uh, Timothy 3.16. Great is the mystery of godliness. That is the hardest of all sayings in the Bible. So now I have to compare what Samson is saying to the Philistines, the riddle that he gave them. And of course, John 6, 53 through 66, the mystery of the crucifixion is a hard saying. Christ portrayed in the communion symbolism. What other great mysteries? Those are the two that I would say are really the same. That is the hypostatic union, the death of God. It's an incredible mystery. So is God and humanity. God adding humanity, the infinite in what appears to be a finite vessel, manifested, the invisible manifested in indivisibility. So what's another great mystery that is unsolvable? What is the mystery that is in Genesis 3? What I have a wife pleading with a man, her husband, for a solution. What is that? We find that in Samson. We find that in Genesis 3. What is Eve pleading for in Genesis 3? What mystery is there? Anyway, 
Samson knew immediately why his wife was begging him for the solution to the unknowable, to the unsolvable. Again, Samson is confronted by his wife who is facing what? Death by burning. I'm assuming that you've read ahead a little bit, or if you haven't, you read it last week while I read it with you. His wife is confronted by death, immediate death. She she will be burned alive. And she weeps on him, the Bible says, for seven days. Seven days she weeps on him. All sevens refer refer and recover or return to the first seven. So we'll have to do that next week as well. And she's desperate for the solution to her impending death. Okay, do you see the proximities or the relationships back here? I hope you do. Once again, we're reminded, taken back to Genesis 3, and Adam likewise has a dying wife. And we'll need to investigate all of that. And as I do with Adam, because Adam is not deceived, what do I think is the condition of Samson here? I will transfer it and see if it fits. I, be, I begin from the perspective that Samson, likewise as is Adam, is not deceived. In other words, I don't have the stupid Adam position and I do not have the stupid Samson position. I don't think both either one of those positions, both of them are very common. Adam as an idiot uh, is probably the most common depiction of Adam as there is in the church today and has been for a long time. Samson is right there with him. I think the opposite is true. So let me repeat it. Samson knew immediately the reason, reason his wife is begging for the unknowable solution to the hard question. A begging, weeping woman seven days. And she is relentless. She's unceasing. Why? She's weeping on him for seven days. Why? She knows she's dead. There's no chance of living, making it through this. But who else is dead? Her father, her mother, all her family members, all her children, dead. They're going to be slaughtered. They're going to be burned alive. So she's pleading with the one person who can do what? Save her. That's right. Absolutely right. And save her from the retribution of the 30 Philistine companions. They're cold-blooded killers of innocent women and children. See, the wager, as you might remember, is 30 sets of undergarments and 30 sets of ornate robes. Solve the riddle and you will win... 30 sets of undergarments, linen, fine linen, and 30 sets of outer garments, these ornate robes. That's the wager Samson presents to them. In order to prevail in the contest, the 30 Philistine wedding companions will do what? Because they can't answer. They try to answer the riddle. They cannot answer it. And so after three days, they decide the solution is easy for them. They're going to win the wager. All they have to do is what? Burn the wife and her family and her children and every bit of her, the entire Temite faction that is in this story. 
What kind of people think that way? Instead of giving a guy 30 pieces of clothing, we're going to kill everybody. That's our plan. Because we don't want to give up our 30 pieces of clothing. Or however many it would be. It would be 30 pieces of undergarments and 30 robes. Now, did Samson know that they would do this? I say yes. So if he knew they were going to do it, then what becomes the next obvious question? I think Samson always knew from the beginning of his life, Judges 13.5, that he was raised up by God for one singular purpose. And that purpose is to do what? God says what it is. Deliver Israel from the Philistines. How do you deliver Israel from the Philistines? You slaughter them. You kill them. Samson is a killer of Philistines. He has 30 Philistine companions at his wedding to a Philistine woman. He is a killer of Philistines. Samson was the deliverer, the slayer of Israel's enemies, and he knew it. He knew the source and the purpose of his unexplainable strength and power. He was completely aware of the nature of his riddle, the cause and effect, if you will, the inevitable chain of events that would result from him putting this riddle in front of these killing, killing people, these uh, murderers. He knew exactly what was going to happen before he did it. What becomes the question? What's he thinking? To rephrase the situation, or some would say the hypothesis here. Samson was about to marry a Philistine woman. That's a forbidden act. Hopefully you remember from last week. Mosaic law prohibits it in Exodus 34.16. In this process, he is provided 30 friends as the bridegroom. He is given 30 friends. The 30 friends that he, he is given are given to him by the family of the bride. The family of the bride is responsible for furnishing these friends of the bridegroom. So I want you to think about that for a second. He's about to have a wedding to a Philistine woman. The father of the Philistine woman goes out and selects for him 30 friends of the bridegroom. Now you'll see the same language used by John the Baptist, right? He's a friend of the bridegroom. Same format. And so, Samson, imagine the meeting of Samson and his 30 friends. Who are they? They're very likely Philistine soldiers, every one of them. Every one of them violent. Every one of them uh, skilled in killing Jews. Every one of them probably someone that has killed Jews. And that's his companions for his wedding. The, the, the hatred between the two groups can't even be described. They hate him. He hates them. They're in his wedding. And he is responsible for the drinking party. So this is a contract. He's the one. He, he's. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Let me get this right. The system is such that the Philistine family of the bride is furnishing the friends of the bridegroom. And all of this is traceable back to Samson. His, he's the one that's responsible for this, isn't he? Because he's the one who ordered his own father and his own mother to go into the Philistine community and contract for a Philistine bride. So he's the one that starts it. 
And the 30 friends are an element of the contract. And that's something that Samson fully knew. He had pre-knowledge of that. Everyone knows it. There isn't anybody that doesn't know it. If I'm going to marry a Philistine bride, then I'm going to have 30 Philistine companions that I have to throw a party for. The question ultimately becomes, how much premeditation does Samson have here? How friendly do you suppose the friends are? Did he know they weren't going to be friendly? In any event, this is the beginning. All of this starts something. All of this starts the judgeship of Samson. This is how the judgeship of Samson begins. If you wish to think of it this way, this is how Samson, this is Samson's first day on the job. Chapter, and here's a here's a, an epiphany for you. This is why I get the big money. Chapter 14 of Judges is connected to chapter 13 of Judges. Actually, it's even more specific than that. Chapter 14, uh, verse 1, is right after uh, chapter 13, verse 25. Well, that means, that's amazing, I know. Good grief. You just don't come by this stuff arbitrarily. You have years of study. Let me read this to you. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the the child grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him, and he went down to get a Philistine bride. Cause and effect. The Spirit of God moved on Samson, and he went down to get a Philistine bride. A forbidden act. Or a Nazarite, for sure. And this starts Samson's judgeship, the beginning of his ministry. The Holy Spirit moves upon Samson. Samson is now a judge, and the first thing the judge does is go get a Philistine bride. As an aside, notice how I did not say the forbidden phrase. It was really close there, but as an aside. A lot better, huh? Samson is really different. He's, as a judge, he is absolutely a solitary judge. He does not deliver Israel by leading an army against the Philistines. He acts alone. He has no army. He he goes alone into Philistine-held territory to take for himself a Philistine bride. So the Holy Spirit moves upon him, and his first act is to go and take a Philistine bride. What else could I call a Philistine bride? She's not a Jew. So if she's not a Jew, what's my other choice? She's a Gentile. Wife is a Gentile. So the first act of the judge Samson is to take for himself a Gentile bride. So what's going on here? The taking of the bride. That's what we have here. This is how he initiates his office. He's not, as you might have thought through, a prophet. He is not a high priest. He is a what? A judge. And he takes his bride, the Gentile bride. That's what he does. 
So we now have the judge of Israel presenting to his supposed friends a collection of 30 murderers that want to kill him and they are willing to kill anybody in order to defeat him. He presents to them a riddle that he knows is not possible for the Philistines to decipher. I submit he also knows that how they will react, what their next move will be. It's entirely predictable that they will kill his bride, and he knows it. And they're going to kill her family and her children and everything that's even close to her, and he knows that. It is the bride and the family who sought them out in the first place and who placed them into this situation. And, and what I mean by that is these are the companions they picked for him. Did he know they would pick these companions? I think he did. Well, anyway, it's something to consider when hiring friends. We think about hiring the congregation of or congregants every Sunday. Let's go out and get some. We intentionally do not pick murderers. We think that would be a bad idea, even though we have a fuller group of people. Trying to be funny, it didn't work. The question becomes, did, did Samson recognize the nature of these 30 friends? I propose that he did. He absolutely expected it. So why is he going to light them up? Because that's what he does. Why present an unanswerable question? What's his plan here? What did they expect when Samson first offers the wager? Typically, the bridegroom conducts the wedding feast and the drinking. That's what he's doing. He's not even supposed to drink. He's a Nazarite. But he's drinking, and he provides all of the, the, the libations or whatever you want to call it. And that's his job. And he has these friends, these people that want to kill him. So he's doing it for his 30 companions that were hired for him, and it's expected that they might, he might give them something of value. That's what the bridegroom does for the friends. Now, he doesn't like these people. They don't like him, and this does not happen. Instead, Samson presents a riddle to them. Instead of a little gift, a little bag of, of uh, nose hair clippers or whatever, fingernail stuff and a comb in a little nice case, I always thought, as you've heard me say many times, a great idea I've seen churches have is the visitors always get a hygiene kit. I think, I think that just cracked me up the first time I saw it. Still makes me laugh. I've been to many churches when you walk in, hi, accept this gift uh, on our behalf for coming to our church. And I, I open it up and it clearly is, uh, there, there, no question that they're telling me I'm in need of personal hygiene. There's deodorant in there, toothpaste. Never turn down a breath mint. That's a law or a rule. All of that to say, what did Samson expect when he lit them up? Why present them an unanswerable question? What did they expect when Samson first offers the wager? They expected some little token. The bridegroom gives a token. The bridegroom conducts the wedding feast drinking. That's what it is for his friends. And then it's expected he would give them something. A little personal hygiene kit, perhaps. He certainly wouldn't give them weapons. This does not happen. Instead of giving them a gift, he presents to them a riddle. And I believe the Philistines expected the riddle to be what? He says, hey, I'll give you a riddle. If you can't answer it within seven days, you give me all this cool clothing of yours. And they agree to it. 
So you have to process why would he do it and why would they agree to it? Well, they agreed to it, in my opinion, because they expected this to follow the traditional system. He's going to give them a wedding riddle or a wedding wager instead of a token gift. And if they solve it, they're going to get all this linen and all these ornate robes. That would be very valuable to them. So what, what were their expectations on the riddle? Did they think it was going to be an impossible, unknowable mystery? No, I don't believe they did. They thought it would be something relatively simple for which they would render a formality leading to a fairly significant gift for each of the 30. That doesn't happen either. Samson lays out this dark saying, a great mystery that needs a solution. Genesis 15, Mark, Matthew 4, Genesis 3. He had to know how this would end. And after three days, they do the obvious, they do the expected, they are going to solve it by killing his bride and her family. That's his choice. He can now give them the answer and they get the stuff or they kill his bride and her family. How will he choose? How long will it take him to make the decision? So we should now read the, the all of that so we can read the next part together. Let's see, where will I go? We'll just start at verse 15. So here we are, Judges 14, verse, verses 15 through 18. I'll back up. Let me go back to 12. Then Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you if you can correctly solve and explain it. Notice, correctly. Solve and explain it to me. Notice both of those. Correctly and explain it to me. Within the seven days of the feast. Seven feast days. Then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said to him, pose your riddle so that we may hear it. Because they expected to get 30 pieces and 30 pieces. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. I think they thought it was simple even then. They're going to solve it. Winner, winner, chicken, breakfast, lunch. Now, for three days, they could not explain the riddle. So after three days, what happened? If I said to you, I have a biblical question, after three days and three nights, what happens? You would answer what? Resurrection. Sign of Joseph. So, after three days, they could not explain the riddle. But it came to pass on the fourth day that they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband. Now, this is really interesting because she is supposed to be what? What does entice mean here? Entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us? Have you hired us in here in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? Then Samson's wife wept on him and said, you only hate me. Why did she say that? You do not love me. You have posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you have not explained it to me. 
She knew what was going to happen. If he doesn't, if he, she knew the, the anatomy as well as he did. And he said to her, look, I have not explained it to my father or my mother, so should I explain it to you? What's the implication there? They want to know the answer to the riddle. They're going to go after anybody who might know it. If you don't tell them the answer, what are they going to do? Kill them. I have not explained it to my father or mother, so why should I explain it to you? Now, she had wept on him the seven days while the feast lasted, and it happened on the seventh day that he told her. Did he always intend to tell her on the seventh day? Because she pressed him so much. We'll have to take on that next week. Then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. So the men of the city said to him the seventh day, on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. And when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him mightily, not a good day for Philistines. And he went down to Ascalon and killed 30 of their men. Why 30? He's got to have his garments, doesn't he? Why doesn't he kill the 30 that have threatened his wife? He doesn't. He goes and kills some other 30. So the question becomes, who are these guys? Why did he do this? Many people think this is so unfair of Samson killing these 30 guys that didn't have anything to do with this at all. Samson is just a violent killing machine and boy, the Bible sure is rotten. <sighs> Killed 30 of their men, took their apparel and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. That's actually very interesting. We'll get to it in a minute. So his anger was aroused and he went back up to his father's house and Samson's wife had been given to his companion who had been his best man. Okay. Now, I want you to notice the order of the process here. The Philistines who were hired to be here charged the bride and her family of intentionally trying to rob them. You knew he was going to ask this. You suckered us into it. You hired us here. You're making idiots out of us. And the Philistines, again, uh, go back and says say to them, have you invited us to, to steal from us? Has this been the plan all along? That's essentially a rhetorical question that assumes that that's exactly what they have done. It's implied, yes, the bride and the family are in on the scheme. This was a pre-planned, orchestrated trap. Now, either reveal the solution or everyone is executed and burned. That's their process. That's their logic. The bride, understandably now, accuses Samson because she's not in on it. So she says, you intentionally set me and my family up for death. You only hate me. This is an act of somebody who hates someone else. And I'm going to say to you that Samson did not hate her. Samson loved the bride. I can prove it. Maybe not today. You can prove it without me. And it's perfectly logical for her to conclude that Samson did this as an act of, almost an act of murder. Going to murder her whole family using these guys. 
He had to know it would happen. And she's accusing him of knowing it happened. Or knowing it would happen. And Samson refuses to relent until the seventh day. And note that he had not told his own father and mother. And notice also that she had wept for all seven days. And the Philistines did not come to her to tell her they intended to kill her until the fourth day. So I have seven days. I have seven days. And on the fourth day, something happens. I have a seven-day period, and on the fourth day, I have what? I have Passover crucifixion, don't I? Seven days of the crucifixion, the fourth day is Passover in the week of the crucifixion. How does that fit here? Obviously, the bride had figured out that she and her family were dead. The first time she heard the dark saying, and she probably started, and she did, she begged Samson's uh, immediately, but she probably also begged Samson's father and mother. And Samson said, you know I didn't tell my father and mother. Three days go by. She's begging from the first day. Says so. Says she, she begged for all seven days. They don't come to her until the fourth day. Which I would expect because it fits the seven-day pattern. There's no avail. All her begging because Samson withheld the solution from everybody. Now try to imagine the impact of all of this. Just put yourself in the situation. A Jew poses an impossible question, question to Philistines at a time of Philistine rule during a wedding celebration between a Jew and a Philistine woman. There's a tremendous amount of tension in all of that. Consider all that tension. Everyone would know about it. The entire community, the sphere of, of knowledge around this community, everyone would, in the immediate impact area, would know about this. And everyone would know it's going to end badly. Death is coming. And again, it's my position that Samson had anticipated all of the consequences to this dark saying, this hard question, that, this riddle that he asks. So notice the elements and the components of all of this. So we now have our obligatory list. List makers want a list. Remember, I told you, always look for Genesis 3. How many times have you found it so far? So here's our list. I should read, hang on a second. I'll put part of the list on here. I have a great mystery. So start looking at Genesis 3. What are the great mysteries in the Bible? There's a solution to it. It's very hard. It's difficult to know if it's almost impossible. And no one knows it. And it's also um, uh, hard to explain. Garments are going to be lost here. Garments lost. Looks like a three. Uh, a weeping woman facing death. So far, what have I got? Do I have Judges 14 and 15? Yes, but what else have I got here? Where is this? 
It's Genesis 3, isn't it? All of her family, her children, death by fire. All the children, all children, all family, death, fire. This woman is the, in Samson, is the mother of all the what? The mother of all the dead. And she can be saved by one person who will deliver Israel and be the Savior. So she can be saved. By one man alone. There's our story. And after seven days, the weeping woman is saved. And all of this came from a dead, roaring lion and bee honey. From the devourer came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. Now, a lot of people think that this is Christ. The lion is Christ. The lion cannot be Christ because it's a young lion and Christ is the Ancient of Days. So I'll take that off immediately. I have a dead lion, a roaring lion that's young, the devourer. So that Christ is not a devourer. And out of the strong came something sweet. Many people think that that is Christ also. He's strong, obviously. He's omnipotent. And out of his death came sweet resurrection. Uh, that won't fit either because of the uncleanness of it. And now you're talking about the corruption of the body. There is no corruption in Christ's body. He is incorruptible. So, let's now go and read uh, 15, 1 through 7 really fast. And after a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it appeared that Samson visited his wife, with a young goat. So he's bringing a young goat to his wife. What's this? This is a present, isn't it? And he said, let me go into my wife, into her room. But her father would not permit Samson to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is it... Is so, one of the Philistines, the head Philistine of that 30, got the wife, the best man. Please, uh, and he says, uh, is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time, this time, I will be blameless. This time I shall be blameless regarding of Philistines if I harm them. Then Samson went and caught 300 foxes. Some translations say jackals. And he took torches, turned the foxes. How long did he have to feed the foxes and keep them all penned up? And then he's got a tie. How does this all work? Turn the foxes tail to tail and put a torch between each of the tails. When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the wheat harvest. It's the time of the wheat harvest. What's he doing? He's destroying their food supply. How big a deal is that? What's going to happen to them? What are they going to have to do? And he knows what they're going to have to do. I'm going to go burn your wheat to the ground. You have no food. What are they going to have to do? They're going to have to go kill somebody to get food. Where do they go? 
Did Samson know this ahead of time? This is a smart man. And burned up both the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyard and olive groves. Then the Philistine says, said, Who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Temnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So because the father, the potential father-in-law, took the wife of Samson and gave it to the best man of the 30 killers, Samson burns all the wheat crops. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. There's your order. Samson said to them, since you would do a thing like this, do a thing like this. We'll get to that in a minute. I will surely take vengeance upon you, and after that I will cease. So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Etron. And I hope you can see all the complexity that's in this. It's a pile of material, and sifting through it's quite the challenge. The best method, as usual, is to find the questions. So let's just go through the questions in the last couple of minutes. Why the seven days? Start thinking to yourself, why seven days? Did the Philistines solve the riddle? Or did Samson allow them to believe they had solved it? Because you have to solve it, and then you have to explain it to him. Samson knew without any doubt that his bride would tell the Philistines to save herself and her family. He wanted her saved and he wanted the family saved. He proves that when he brings the goat back, right? He thinks it's going to be his wife. They obviously repeated her word for word back to Samson. He would know it came from her. Did he give her the entire solution? Did the Philistines even understand the meaning of the words? And Samson responds, if you had not threatened my bride with a burning death, I would not have told you the solution through her. So connect that to Genesis 3. Then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson. Why does the Spirit come at this particular time? What about the preceding facts result in the Holy Spirit moving on Samson this way? How do they connect? Is it the weeping of the bride? Is it her imminent death sentence? Why does God move now at this time? Why does Samson kill 30 Philistines that aren't even part of the wedding and strip them of their garments? And Samson gives the garments to the 30 who supposedly explained the dark question. How did they explain it? You got, you're a Philistine. You're one of the 30. You got, you got linen garments. Where'd they come from? Thirty dead people. What condition do you suppose the garments were in? Samson gave to the thirty blood-soaked garments. Was it your view that Samson was careful that he killed these guys, but he folded it all up and he had a laundromat and he tied and bleached? Is that what you were thinking? And he iron-ironed them? He killed these men, and then he went into their houses and stole their best clothing. It doesn't say that. He says he went to see that he knew they were there. He knew they were wearing this clothing. What kind of Philistine is wearing this clothing? 
the 30 guys weren't wearing the clothing. That's why he didn't kill them. That didn't work. He's going to, he's going to get the garments. And he's got to have guys that have the garments. And he's got to know where they are. And he knows where they are. And he goes down, kills 30 of them. Brings back their garments and says, here, have at it. You pick first. You're the best man. I submit there's an obvious relationship to the killing of the 30 and the taking of their clothing. I think that's very clear. So his anger was aroused. Duh. Why exactly? Samson's wife is given to his best man by the father. Why did the father do that? He had to. This is a man that can go down and kill people at whim. I'm going to give his wife away? You don't do that. Why did he do it? Why did he give the wife to the best man? Come on, you can do this. You can tell me later what you think. Otherwise, we'll have to wait till next week. The father takes the wife of Samson and gives her to the best man. Who did the father pick to be the best man? Because Samson didn't pick. Father picked it. Picked it. And Samson says, this time, now that you have given away my wife, this time I can go kill people and be blameless. But he doesn't kill people. He burns the entire food supply. I can be blameless this time. What's the previous time, do you suppose? Harvest time. Wheat harvest. Got to figure out what month it is. Samson destroys the entire Philistine food supply because the father gave Samson's bride to the best man. You got to be able to explain that. And ultimately, the Philistines come and burn the entire family anyway. Kill the bride anyway, right? Kill the family. And what does Samson do? Kills them. And this is what he says. Because you have He says, because you have done this, there you go, because you have done this, I now will kill you all. There you go. What do you got there? Genesis 3. Fit them all together. That's pretty much word for word. Some, Some will translate it because you have done this thing, which I think is perfectly appropriate. But it's pretty much word for word, Genesis 3, 14. How are they the same? Next week, we'll put it all together for you. If there is a next week, here's hoping this is the last sermon. Anna called me today and said, how's it feel to be doing your last sermon? Boy, that'd be amazing. Wouldn't it be amazing? Obviously, I'm assuming that I'll have to see Ezekiel 38 first. But we shall see. I'll be happy either way. Let's uh, rise and be dismissed.